This is a Relay Project. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. We know that mental health challenges present for more than one in five of us. And if you look around the room, workplaces, family rooms, what have you, we quickly recognize that by association, mental illness impacts every single one of us. Yet still, stigma stands in the way of us actually talking about things like schizophrenia. Not for Lauren Kennedy West. In fact, she lives out loud on her YouTube channel, where oftentimes her videos are viewed more than a million times. She headlines this episode of The Best of Real Talk. As mentioned, Lauren Kennedy West is the host. Uh, I'm pretty sure she's the producer. We're going to find out more about that in just a moment. But she's also the subject of Living Well with Schizophrenia. That's the name of her YouTube channel that has nearly 200,000 subscribers. She puts out videos on feeling alone with your mental illness, talking about antipsychotics, talking about reacting to memes about schizophrenia and other mental health issues brain scans, diagnoses, and 10 signs perhaps that you may be slipping into psychosis. Some of her videos, as you can see, have literally millions of views. She produces and hosts them out of her studio in Edmonton, Alberta, and we're thrilled to welcome her to our studio in downtown Edmonton, making her Real Talk debut. It's so nice to have you here. Thanks for making time for us. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. I remember the first time I saw your channel. I didn't know you were from Edmonton when I first saw it and I just was looking at production value and subject matter and I was going this is top-notch content did you always think that you'd be hosting something that literally millions of people would be watching oh my gosh no when this started well when it started my husband suggested it as a a project we could take on it's just a small thing and I think we got about 12 views on the first video and I was like, wow, this is like an incredible reach. Like I'm done. (laughs) This is, this is it. But it's grown exponentially since then. And it's really remarkable. Yeah. You think if you think of it in terms of actual people, I try to look at numbers and think of it in terms of people, 12 people in a room. That's great. 12 people are there to hear what you want. What what do you think now? I mean, I'm not even looking back that far, but I mean, there's videos of yours that, you know, I'm looking right here, 1.6 million views Uh, that I think in terms of like football stadiums, that's like a whole bunch of football stadiums. Is it ever lost on you? the, The audience that you've built talking about mental health? I think, you know, we're creating these videos out of the basement of our home and it's it's kind of hard to comprehend the reach that some of them have. But, you know, hearing daily in comments and whatnot from so many people from all over the world about how our content is impacting them and helping them. Um, really, I guess, helps to keep us going. You and I are having a coffee before the show here, and I, and I asked what I think was probably a stupid question. I said, are you cool with getting into your own personal story? And as I've asked you the question, I'm like, that's, that's what you do. It's what yeah. you talk about. You put it all out there. Was that, a, was that a difficult step for you to take, to, to go from navigating your own mental health journey to putting it all out there, as we say, for public consumption? Definitely. I think when we started the channel, I wasn't even public with the people in my life about having schizoaffective disorder. And so it was kind of like this, just dive into the deep end of letting everyone in my life know and everyone on the internet know about this 
thing that was kind of a personal struggle for a long time. And then just kind of making it known to everyone was a big leap, but it's actually really helped in terms of developing self-acceptance and just kind of normalizing some of the challenges and experiences that come with it. Can you tell us a bit about schizoaffective disorder? Yeah. I would imagine that members of the general public probably don't have, myself included, a full understanding of exactly what that is. Yeah. So schizoaffective disorder is a combination of schizophrenia and a major mood disorder. So for me, it's bipolar disorder. So I kind of have symptoms from both schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. Hmm. So how did, when did you first realize, like at what point in your life, age-ish, did you realize that you were going to be navigating a challenge that maybe not everybody was? I first started to experience symptoms that I didn't feel I could really manage on my own when I was around 18 or 19. That's the first time I went to see a doctor for my mental health. Um, and it was it was the prodrome phase of schizoaffective disorder or schizophrenia, which is basically the period before the onset of schizophrenia symptoms. Um, where, which typically looks a lot like depression. Mm. And so I was diagnosed with depression when I went to see the doctor and was kind of treated for that. But obviously it wasn't the right thing that I was being treated for. So that wasn't terribly effective. Um, so that's kind of around the time when I knew that something was different, but I didn't know what I was dealing with until I was diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder at 25, I believe. So seven years from the time you first go to a doctor until you get a, a diagnosis that you felt at that point was accurate. Like yeah. at, at that point, you, you're you reading about the symptoms, you're reading up on it and you go, yeah, that sounds like what I'm wrestling with. Yeah, I had been given a couple other different diagnoses during that seven years and none of it, it never really felt like it lined up for me. Like it never felt like, yeah, that, that makes sense to me. That's what I have. And then the treatment for those things wasn't effective either. So it all kind of came together when I was finally diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder at 25. Hmm. And, and at that time, was the diagnosis a relief, I would imagine, in a way? It was kind of a mixed bag of, you know, relief that, wow, okay, finally the things that I was experiencing, there's something to attribute it to. But it was also, you know, scary. I, I imagine, excuse me. No, it's okay. Most people have preconceived notions of what it means to live with schizophrenia and they're not exactly positive. Um, and so I was scared about what that meant for my life trajectory beyond that point and what it meant to live with a chronic serious mental illness like that. So, you know, there was, there was fear and uncertainty but also relief so mm. yeah yeah so I'm, I'm just reading here and this this from the uh the canadian network for research in, in schizophrenia that it says approximately uh four percent of the population which which is about a million and a half canadians um you know uh affects uh, or are affected either directly or indirectly uh by schizophrenia or other psychotic disorders so if, if we go back to the idea of like processing your audience in terms of how that fills a room, you know, if, if you're in a re even a small restaurant, that would be two or three or four people. If you're in a classroom, that would be like one or two people, that that sort of idea. Did, did you feel like when you were able to, to receive that diagnosis and start connecting with with perhaps a network or resources that you felt that support or, or, or did you feel alienated in a way? Like, yeah. did, did you feel separated from society or or did you feel in a way like you had sort of found a group where you could start finding those supports? Yeah, you know, when I first started opening up 
it was, I, I think that a lot of people assume that they don't know anybody who has a schizophrenia spectrum illness because it's not something that's really openly talked about. Right. People don't come forward and say, yeah, I live with schizophrenia to the people in their life very often, especially acquaintances and whatnot. But really, like you said, it affects a good enough number of people that you probably do know at, at least one or two people who live with the illness. And so when I started being more open about it, I actually had people within my own life, whether it was people I knew through sport or, you know, acquaintances um, who would come forward and be like, yeah, my relative has this, or I have this, or they felt safe coming forward with that. And it was kind of wild to see how many people it actually affects and how much we hide it. Mm. Why do you think stigma? I mean, is it that simple? Do you think, do you think people are afraid of, of implications perhaps in the workplace or what their friends might think, or, you know, did you have experience in, in sort of trying to keep things copacetic and, and under a carpet for a while? Yeah, definitely. I didn't want people to know, especially in professional settings or where I felt that people um, would make judgments about my capacity or my ability to perform in whatever way that was. Um, I think that, yeah, the stigma really exists and people, again, have these preconceived notions about what it means to live with an illness like schizophrenia. And so I felt anyway that if I let people know, if I let my bosses know, if I let colleagues know or whatever, that they would you know, judge me harshly for that and think I wasn't capable or treat me differently. And so perhaps that's a bit of internalized stigma that people deal with in terms yeah. of not wanting to talk. But, you know... I've also experienced coming forward with the illness in the workplace or wherever and being met with kind of stigmatized responses in terms of being pushed out of jobs and just not, people not really knowing how to how to talk about it. You experienced that? It. You experienced being pushed out of a job? Yeah, so I was having a mental health crisis. I was going through a difficult patch and I needed to take some time off work. And then it came to light that I live with schizoaffective disorder. And it became clear that they didn't know what that meant and didn't know how to deal with that and didn't really want to deal with that, if I can say that. Mm -hmm. um, and it ended up being a case of me getting pushed out of the job. I wasn't blatantly fired, but, you know, it was it was clear that they wanted me to resign. And so I did. It's none of my business, but how did that play out? I just resigned and then and that was it. That was it. Wow. Yeah. yeah. You know, you say that, you know, they don't want to deal with it. And there's there that there are probably millions of examples of that. Right. I mean, I would imagine that people living with any sort of uh, mental health challenge, mental health disorder, mental health disease, whatever, you know, whatever it may be anywhere on that spectrum uh, probably uh, have encountered um, you know, circumstances where whether it's a superior, like a, a supervisor in a, in, a, in a workplace, or perhaps it's even a personal relationship for a lot of folks that lack the understanding uh, or maybe lack some empathy, to be quite honest, um, it's just easier to not deal with it, right? It's, it's yeah. easier to just push it out. Uh, and I bet you if you put it out there, I mean, I'm curious to ask even members of our live tuning audience right now to look into the live chat to see if it's happened to other people. Is that a common refrain that you hear uh, the more people that, that, that you speak with that have maybe similar experiences? Yeah, I think there's a lot of um, people within the neurodivergent community who interact with our YouTube channel, whether it's differences in neurodiversity. And um, they all kind of have similar experiences. And I think that you can probably actually 
look at this from any minority perspective where, you know, if you have some sort of different need or whatnot from the mainstream needs, it's easy to just kind of not address that as the main collective, if that makes sense. Yeah. 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 So you have uh, at the time you're you're 25 years old. Um, and if, if my math is correct, so you're a mom at this point, right? No. So or was actually, it right around that time? Well, my two oldest are from my husband. Oh, pardon me. Okay. That's okay. Okay. <laughs> so, so you have, but you, so, so you're, you're mid twenties and, and at that time you, you have a job that there's been an experience that was kind of a negative experience. And if, if I can call it that, I mean, I'm assuming so yeah, being yeah. forced out, you know, <laughs> resigning in a circumstance that was not exactly your choice. Um, how did you get to a point? I mean, you, the name of your channel is Living Well mm-hmm. with Schizophrenia. And um, I, I don't mean to sort of like contribute to, you know, this is probably one of those tropes where you're going to roll your eyes when I say it. But on the surface, you appear to have it all together. I mean, even when people see the thumbnails on your channel or even the promotional stuff that we're pushing out, it's just like living well with schizophrenia. And it's like, yeah, no kidding. Right. But there are a lot of other people that probably don't feel that way. So, so how did you navigate that from a time where you get you receive this diagnosis? It's a difficult diagnosis. You've been on, uh, like you said, a medication regimen that that was not really necessarily working. You have a negative experience in the workplace. How does that start to turn around? Yeah, so. I mean, I had quite a few years where I was not living well with my mental illness and I was really, really struggling. And I think it kind of started to click and come together for me personally when I started developing a family. You know, I met my husband, his two kids. We had a kid of our own. You know, that connection and purpose, I think, really helped me to... um, figure out what living well meant for me. And so that was a really important um, decision to name the channel Living Well with Schizophrenia because I think that a lot of people, people with the diagnosis of schizophrenia included, often feel like that's just not possible. You know, you can't live well with a chronic mental illness like schizophrenia. And so we really wanted to kind of shift the conversation that's happening around this illness and make it more about, okay, yeah, there are very real struggles and challenges that come along with living with schizophrenia. But, you know, how can we focus on how to live well with those Mm. challenges still too? And, you know, you said that I look really well presenting and whatnot. And I worry, I worry about how that is communicated, you know, because I, I am not someone who has everything all together. And Nobody does. Glossy. No, no one does. Nobody and so does. <laughs> I worry about that being what people are receiving because that's not the full message. And I think we really try to get into that on the YouTube channels, really talking about, okay, these are daily struggles that I face. Hmm. These are broad level, big picture struggles that I face and really keeping that in the conversation as well, because I think it's very easy to see, you know, a well-spoken white woman on Mm. the the internet, you know, talking about living with schizophrenia and getting the wrong idea about the realities of the illness. And I don't want people to feel alienated if they don't feel super put together either. Well, and like, so, so real talk, Yeah. like I hesitate to even say that because what am I saying? 
right? Like you just spelled out, like, what do you mean? She looks like she has it all together. Like, what's that supposed to mean? Like, she fits in that little box. She fits, you know, ticks those checks. Like, she, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, is 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 living well with a mental illness, or for that matter, any health challenge is like, is that supposed to look a certain way? And it's not. Yeah. And other people that are living with mental health uh, disorders, or what, what's the preferred? Vernacular, by the way, what do you say? Disorder, illness? Do you, do you I'm not a, really sure. I yeah. say illness, mental illness. Mental illness. Yeah. People, people that have their own challenges. Um, you know, well, so what? So I don't look like that. Does that mean I'm not living well? Right. So it's. I, I always try to teach myself or, or be open to learning on like, you know, what what optics are and and how optics, you know, are oftentimes are very powerful, but oftentimes matter very little. You know what I mean? Yeah, the optics are less important. And I think what we really try to emphasize on the channel is that living well means having a meaningful or a life that you find meaning in, a life that you find purpose in, a life that you find fulfilling. Mm. And that really being the epitome of what it means to live well with an illness like schizophrenia. Yeah, I wanted to ask you, so how do, how do you define living well? Like, yeah. is, is your answer going to be different from Jason's who's watching live and I'm going to read his comment in just a second and that's going to be different than Todd's and that's going to be different than Tony's and Tracy's and all these people whose comments I'm about to read. Everyone's definition is probably going to be a little bit different. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, what I'm talking about when I talk about living well with an illness like schizophrenia is those things like finding meaning in your life, purpose, fulfillment, and just living a life you care about and you want to engage with. Hmm. Let me get to some of these because these are, I mean, some powerful comments as you might expect. Um, Todd, by the way, says he says, I've been following her journey for years. Oh. <laughs> uh, you've been doing what, about four years, the channel? Yeah. yeah. Um, he says her, her rawness and her openness has been amazing and necessary. He says it removes the stigma. Is that difficult to show up in studio and, and, and decide every time to be that open, to be that raw? I mean, does, is that a conscious decision that you have to make some days more difficult than others? It is. Um, I think I go through periods of burning out a little bit on just kind of bleeding on camera, you know, being really, really open and honest about really, you know, challenging things in my life. And that can take its toll for sure. But again, like it's really nice to hear things like that from people who are watching who really it resonates with and it's helpful to them. And so that kind of keeps me going in that regard. Hmm. This one from Kimberly, this is a tough one. She says, my friend lost her uh, 27 year old son uh, who died by suicide this past fall. Uh, after a few years of a mental health battle, he had been diagnosed with schizophrenia. Schizophrenia is it's, uh, terribly sad. Um, you know, uh, M.A. says, unfortunately, our mental health system is very inadequate. Uh, uh, M.A. says in Alberta, but I, I think you could probably uh, I, I'm not sure if you've seen a jurisdiction anywhere in the world that really does it well. Uh, with regards to supports no. and funding and I mean all, all I seem to hear and I don't I don't mean to be the downer here but I, I mean I you know you hear people that wait uh, oftentimes a year for counseling resources or, or people that have been doing their best and, and, and trying to find supports and just have and have been as proactive as possible especially considering the uphill climb that so many people are on and have still been able to find those supports but MA goes on to say not enough resources available to those seeking help help really long wait times and and too many people falling through the cracks and, and Allison's agreeing with her on that. Tracy says, unfortunately, I see too many people pushed out of jobs they love uh, oftentimes because of impossible workloads. And then when those folks are confronted or talk to their employers, they let them go and claim 
that it was mental health, which is an interesting point. And, and Jason, one here says this conversation's hitting really close to home. Jason says, I've been uh, ousted from my past three jobs uh, due to having such significant mental stress happening that I've, I've lost my cool in different ways. And he says, and, and to be honest, I can't even be mad about it. So, I mean, these are these are people. These are these are real life stories. You must have. I mean, I've, I've, I've scrolled some of your comments on your videos and there are thousands and thousands of comments. How does that resonate with you? Even that is heavy lifting processing what some people are disclosing to you. Yeah. Um, I mean, just l- reading these few comments from live viewers right now is a lot, you know, hearing how systems have failed them and hearing how we're not doing a good job of supporting people living with this illness. And that's really hard, but it kind of also is a driver to keep doing what we're doing in terms of raising awareness, in terms of better educating people on how to talk about these things, how to advocate for themselves in terms of accessing care. That's a really important component that I think often goes overlooked. Um, Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Do you when you're can, can we get into some some of the stuff that I want to get nerdy about, like okay. producing shows oh, yeah. and actually doing like how are you <laughs> when I say how are you coming up with the content? Like a lot of this is obviously based on your lived experience or what you're observing around you or what you have learned uh, through your journey. But but how does that come together? Can you talk to us about the the production process and, and how you determine your subject matter? And, you know, I mean, obviously, we're encouraging everybody today to go subscribe to your channel. You've got a, a phenomenal phenomenal channel living well with schizophrenia but but how do you come up with all all of the material and and how does it make its way to the final finished product yeah so I, when we first started out we were like okay we're gonna make a tight like 20 video max sort of collection of videos about all the key things about living with schizophrenia oh, and then that was it and that was it that was oh. where we were gonna stop but then you know continuing to work on this there's so many different nuanced things to talk about about living with an illness like schizophrenia or living with you know just talking about mental health in general. And so, I don't know, my husband and I are kind of always going back and forth, talking about potential um, video ideas. Things come up in my life that I feel would be valuable to share with other people. And we just kind of go from there. Hmm. Um, I, I want to, uh, if, if it's not evident already, just let people know that, uh, you know, we're about to, I want to have a conversation with you about suicide. And uh, and I know that, that for a lot of people, this is uh, really going to resonate uh, for some people that have lost loved ones, for some people that may have suicidal ideations themselves. Uh, and we'll talk about resources. But, uh, you know, in your channel, um, you have some of your most popular videos. And those are, of course, based on the numbers and the downloads and the streams. And then you have a segment, Our Favorites. And uh, this video doesn't have the most views. It's still got a ton. It's still got more than 17,000. That's a hockey arena full. I like to see how you, do you see how my mind works. Yeah. Yeah, Rogers place is full of the people that have watched this. Uh, it's Edmonton's high level bridge. And the title of the video is this is the bridge. I thought I would jump off. Can you tell us this story and, and tell us how you got to a point of being able to produce a video about it and put it out there for people to watch? Yeah. So, you know, before this video, actually, we put out a video where I talked about the day I almost died. And that was a day that I had overdosed and was taken to the hospital and put on life support and whatnot. And so we really try to be honest and open about really difficult aspects of the illness, like suicide. And um, I think that it's a really, really important thing to talk about in terms of 
helping people who are maybe navigating feelings of wanting to end their life feel less alone, normalize it a little bit, because I think it can be a really scary and isolating experience. Um, And so I hope anyway, that by talking about it openly on the channel and, you know, talking about suicidal ideation, talking about attempts and whatnot will help people to feel less alone and to understand how to access help and support for Mm. when they're feeling that way. Mm. Um, A a friend of mine, um, how do you phrase it? Survived an attempt or recently survived the last couple of weeks. Um, I don't think that she wants me talking about it on the show, so I won't get into, into too many specifics, but she did share with her social media network. Um, and uh, it was a it was a tough one to read about, especially because. And again, you you want to talk stigma? She's one of those people that you look at and you're like, she's got it all together, mm-hmm. right? She's got it all all the promise in the world and all the things that you would think that somebody would want, right? Success and beauty and you know, blah blah blah, and the circle of friends that love her. But this is something that she struggled with for her entire life. And um, of course, when she shared, and I think that for her that was an important part of the process is to share. Um, the comments again were incredible and there were a lot of people you know I was one of them that, that was there just to say we love you. Uh, you know, she was a she sort of it was almost had like an apology kind of a tone to it and everyone's like you don't know anybody in apology we mm-hmm. love you you're valued but but there were so many comments a significant number of comments that really made an impression of me uh, of people with whom this resonated yeah. right and I think um, that it's more common than the average person might think. And, you know, we talk a lot about people are using this word normalize more often, but whether we're talking about death by suicide or whether we're just talking about living with a, a mental health disorder or a mental health, uh, a mental illness, um, normalizing it, I think is helping people understand. You know, we say this all the time on the Let's Talk days and all the other days. We say one in five Canadians will live with mental illness, but actually think about that. Like when you're out with your friends around a table, I'm realizing I keep doing this, but like you're around a table. That's that's like one person at the table, you know, at your family table. That's one person around the family table, right? And I think part of that attempt to normalize is getting comfortable talking about what is now uncomfortable things and knowing how to support each other through that. Mm -hmm. Because I think, you know, your friend laced her message with a sorry. And so there's a lot of shame and guilt inherently wrapped up in the experience of suicidal thinking. And so we need to work on how to remove that and just be able to talk about it in a way that can be met with empathy, support, and not what is currently assumed will be judgment or, you know, whatever that shame is coming from. How do you think we remove it? I mean, I think you are doing some heavy lifting in removing <laughs> stigma. Here you are talking about it right now, your YouTube channel. People should follow you on Instagram. They can find you on Twitter as well. And of course, at LaurenKennedyWest.com. Uh, Lauren Kennedy West, our guest, if you're just tuning in, live streaming on the Mixler audio app presented by California Closets. Uh, do you think like stigma wise, this is something where everybody can play a role? I do. And I think it starts with getting more comfortable yourself with it because we just did a video on this where um, I think that living with a mental illness, regardless of what it is, can be a really isolating and lonely experience Mm -hmm. because so often there are people in your life who love you and care about you and want to support you, but don't necessarily know how or aren't necessarily comfortable 
talking about the more difficult components of what it means to live with a mental illness. And so doing that work of getting more comfortable ourselves so that we can better support the people in our lives and better show up for conversations about these difficult things. I want to let people know that uh, if you are uh, considering suicide, if this is something that's hitting home with you, help is available with Talk Suicide Canada, uh, available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. You can learn more or give them a call right now at one 456 four five six six or simply text four five six four five can we talk about meds sure <laughs> uh, you, you you talk a lot about meds uh, including a, a recent post of yours just under a year ago drowning in psych meds yeah <laughs> that reads the headline and you talk about a complicated relationship with meds yeah so i think it's important to understand you know i think a lot of people are like why would you ever stop taking meds? Because I have this well-known on our YouTube channel pattern of stopping my medication and then it leading to psychosis and then the hospital or worse or whatever. And that kind of being an unfortunate pattern that has played out in my life. And I'm not alone in that. There are many other people who are living with illnesses such as schizophrenia who have done this same thing in the past. And I think people don't understand why you would do that, myself included at times. But it's really important to understand that these meds make you feel kind of awful a lot of the time. There's some really nasty side effects. There's the, you know, internal combat of do I need to take these meds? Are they helping me? Are they more dangerous for my body? You know, what is this doing long-term? And this kind of ongoing struggle present with taking meds, but also then knowing that, well, these meds allow me to show up at a minimum, you know, in my life the way I want to. And maybe not the way I want to because they are a little bit debilitating, but in a way that is better than being in constant psychosis. Mm. So I have a really complicated relationship with my meds. I'm kind of always talking with my doctor about, okay, how do we reduce? How do we reduce? How do we, let's work on getting off meds. And that's always kind of a goal in the back of my mind, but it hasn't always gone great. And so learning how to balance that a little bit has been an ongoing journey. Yeah, and you talk to people in in um, like coming at this from different perspectives, like you, first person, firsthand, lived experience. You're telling your story. You'll talk to people that care very deeply about somebody that's on meds for a for a mental health challenge, and and and, and how you know um, heartbreaking or frustrating or infuriating it can be when when the the the, the regimen is not followed exactly, and you understand. Yeah. Like, but it's a constant conversation because. To, to that person, to the person on the meds, getting off the meds, what I would imagine would feel like a, a big mile marker to cross, right? Yeah. Like that would be a, a big sort of like a, a summit to reach. Yeah. When I first started dating my now husband, I was really struggling with taking meds and I would voice to him that I didn't want to take my meds and he would take personal offense to that. You know, mm. he would be like, I don't get it, you know, like this feels like you are insulting me, not insulting me, but you know, like it's an offense to me that you're not taking your meds, if that makes sense. And I think that that's where a lot of loved ones are coming from in terms of being like, I just don't understand, you know, they're, they're making this bad decision and mm. it's affecting everyone in their lives and they're not realizing and that kind of thing. But it's, 
it's a really complicated thing to navigate and to balance. Can we talk about the lost years? Yeah, sure. <laughs> it's a that's a it's a really interesting uh, one of the more interesting videos I think that you put out there, and this is where you're really laying it all out there. It's like a journal entry. Yeah. Um, and I wonder if this you know part of our conversation might uh, strike a chord with with somebody that's maybe been holding back on on talking to a professional, or maybe been holding back on on disclosing to their loved ones. Um, the lost years. The lost years, yeah. So I made this video and I was talking about basically the years from when I was 18, 19, went to see the doctor for the first time and maybe a few years after actually my diagnosis of schizoaffective disorder for so like almost a decade of what I grieved over and felt like they were lost years because it felt like it was just so packed with struggle and isolation, loneliness, and just not knowing what was going on with me. And, you know, during these years, I attempted suicide a couple of times. And, like, it was really heavy stuff that I went through and confusing stuff and not not knowing how I fit into the world, kind of. And mm. so that's how I refer to or what I refer to as my lost years. Mm. You, uh, you you talk a lot about the like the memes and the the stigma and the kind of the, uh, the uh, I can I I'll, let me tell the audience something that I said to you okay, okay. this is like so in a self deprecating way so we're talking uh, before the show starts and I'm talking to Lauren and I said and like maybe we can talk about some of the things that drive you absolutely crazy and then as I says as the word comes out of my mouth I'm like oh I just wanted to reel it back in you know I mean it, just even that like people becoming more aware of the language they use and 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 the phrases and the misconceptions and and I guess this all does come back to the stigma but. Do you consider yourself to be a, a bit of a, a warrior on that front, like an educational warrior of like bringing people up to speed on like memes and gifts and, you know, all those types of things? Yeah, the meme video, those those were popular. Um, yeah, really yeah. popular. Uh, they were fun to do because I think that, you know, there's a lot of humor out there around. Like I was surprised how many schizophrenia memes or mental health memes there were, but unless it's coming from someone with lived experience, it's it's probably not going to be in the best taste. Yeah, you know? yeah. And I think that, you know, that has to do with language and stuff. Like I appreciated you caught yourself with the- Like right crazy. away, I was like, Yeah, that was it. great. <laughs> no, and it's important to be reflective of those things and to catch ourselves when we're using language like that or when we're um, engaging in jokes or what have you that maybe don't do justice to the people who are actually living with those issues. You have an amazing video, uh, 15 things not to say to someone with schizophrenia. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I want people to just go watch the video. Uh, and we probably don't have time to cover all 15, but, but you know, we always try to learn something every day on this show. Can you give us a couple examples? Oh, I forget that video now, but I don't know. Some it's things, really good. Some things not to say are, you know, or one that comes up often is, well, it's all in your head. Like, don't worry. It's all in your head if you're conveying symptoms or you're conveying paranoia or whatnot. And that's kind of like, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. It still feels real. Telling you know, someone like with heart disease. A, well, it's just in your it's chest. It's just in your chest. Like, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Or um, I'm trying to think of some of the other ones in that video. 
you know, I've talked to so many uh, people, I mean, through the years doing different interviews of someone, for example, living with depression. Um, and they'll say that people say, well, why don't you just focus on the positives? Oh, yes. Why don't you just try to be happy? Yeah. It's a great day. Why don't you just take a bath? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Go for a soak. Go Walk for a run, you know, and that feels alienating because like, we know, we know that those things help to improve mood, but if you're struggling deeply with depression or with whatever mental illness you may be struggling with, those aren't going to be enough to kind of help pull you out necessarily. Or, you know, it just feels a little bit patronizing to say those things to people because they know that those things can help, but, you know. Um, I want to ask you about one last video here. Uh, I mean, I could obviously we could sit here for six hours and uh, but you you have one. Um, I'm a mother with schizophrenia and then answering your questions. Yeah. And it's a great resource. And again, people can find all of the videos we're talking about in Lauren's channel, which is living well with schizophrenia. Um, there are going to be people that are going to hear this. I mean, some people are probably going to discover Real Talk for the first time today because they're your fans. <laughs> um, and then there are going to be uh, subscribers or audience members of this show that are going to hear about you for the first time. Um, some of them will be parents. Some of them will be caregivers or, or people who have dependents. What's your message to them today? Um, I think my message would be that, you know, don't be too hard on yourself. It's a tough gig parenting. And I think for a while, I wasn't even sure if I wanted to have kids because of my mental illness. Uh. I wasn't sure if I would be able to show up in the way I wanted to be. If I wanted to show up, I wasn't sure if I would, you know, have the capacity to be the kind of mother I wanted to be. And then obviously the genetic component as well. But it, like everyone has their struggles which may show up differently than mental illness, but you may have a mental illness and be parenting, but everyone has their struggles. And it's really just about figuring out how to navigate your struggle and still show up in your life the way you want to. And so it's been a really incredible journey of realizing that I can still be the kind of parent I want to be and show up for my kids and still live with my mental illness and it's a tough balancing act to balance it all, but it can be done. And, you know, don't be too hard on yourself if you feel like you're dropping balls because odds are you're doing a pretty good job. Mm, I love it. Um, thank you so much for joining us in studio. The time has flown as we knew it would. And your perspective is just so valued and so appreciated. And uh, it means a lot to us that you made time. You moved a bunch of stuff around to make this happen. We've been, we've been <laughs> looking forward to it for a few weeks uh, longer than that since I first found your channel. Um, if you want to learn more about what Lauren does, if you want to hire her to speak uh, to your company, to your organization, uh, Lauren, obviously a mental health advocate and speaker focusing on living well with mental illness. You can learn more and book her at laurenkennedywest.com. And of course, you can find her on YouTube, like about 200,000 subscribers do at Living Well with Schizophrenia. Thank you for this. Thank you so much for having me. You got it. That's Lauren Kennedy West. Up next on this episode of the best of real talk, former pro hockey player, Sportsnet broadcaster and author Justin Bourne on alcoholism, hockey and family life. But first, a word from the sponsors who make this all possible. 
Are you a professional engineer or a recent graduate from an engineering school anywhere in Canada? Apex Automation wants to talk to you. That's right. They're hiring in a number of rewarding career opportunities. We're talking engineering, fabrication, automation. This team is leading the charge, putting their people and their clients ahead of their profits. You want proof on why this company's culture is different than all the rest? Check them out today at apexautomation.ca. Tens of thousands of Canadians are trusting their post-secondary learning experience to Athabasca University. Why? Because Canada's Open University offers world-class accredited online programs and courses that give you the flexibility to learn at your own pace on a schedule that suits your lifestyle. Plus, it's one of Canada's most reputable research universities. You can learn more about the undergraduate, graduate programs, and other reasons to check out AthabascaU.ca. California Closets is providing custom closets and storage solutions for the entire home. Make the most of your space with their custom organizational systems. Sure, it may be a dream closet in your bedroom, or maybe it's a craft closet downstairs for the kids. How about something to house your entertainment system in a way that increases the quality of the experience and the value of your home? Plus, they do garages. Oh, do they do garages? You can get a free consultation today at californiaclosets.ca. Are you dealing with flood damage, fire damage? Maybe you or your construction crew found mold or asbestos in those walls you're looking to renovate? Oh man, this type of nightmare needs to be trusted to the talented team at Complete Care Restoration. They're the ones we trusted with our studio build. They're the ones you should trust for whatever you need done, construction, renovation, or recovery. It's Complete Care Restoration online at completecarerestoration.ca. No matter what you're celebrating, guaranteed there's a perfect fit for a custom DQ cake. That's right, any occasion is a happy occasion with a DQ cake. We recommend that Real Talkers check out the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. You'll find happiness however you want it. That world-famous soft serve with a fudgy, crunchy, chocolatey middle. The perfect way to celebrate any occasion is a DQ cake from the Dairy Queens in Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount, and Baseline Road. For more than 20 years, Eden Landscaping has been bringing outdoor spaces to life. Still family-owned, still based out of Edmonton, Alberta, this team has perfected the art of modern to traditional than every other type of landscape design. Their projects all have one thing in common, that's happy clients. What's the difference in dealing with Eden Landscaping? Find out today with a free consultation. You can learn more and book it at landscapeedmonton.ca. The first of the month means 15% off grocery purchases of $75 or more at all Friesen Brothers locations. 16 of them across the province of Alberta where Albertans have trusted this family-owned grocer to put quality, affordable, nutritious meals on those family dinner tables. Established in 1955, still family-owned. It's Friesen Brothers online at Friesen.com. 
Pet-Care.com. Are you noticing health issues with your pets? Maybe obvious joint pain? Maybe there's something with their coat just doesn't look the same as it used to? It could be what they're eating. May we recommend you check out Grand Dog Essentials Quality Raw Food. We're proud to feed Grand Dog Essentials Quality Raw Food to our dogs, and we've seen the health benefits. The best part about it, it's affordable. The business is family-owned. They care deeply about what they do, and the food's delivered right to our door. If you're in Edmonton, Calgary, or Central Alberta, check them out online. The promo code REALTALK takes 10% off your first order at granddog.ca. Are you an apprentice or journey person electrician? Kubi Renewable Energy would love to hear from you. That's right. It is heading into their hottest season, the busiest time of year, and they're looking for installers looking to put up solar power projects across BC, Alberta, and into Saskatchewan. Kubi Energy is one of Canada's busiest solar installers and the only installer that's Tesla certified. You can check out the work that they're doing online at kubienergy.ca. Make the next move in your career today. If you're making decisions for a small business, a large business, or an entire community when it comes to residential or commercial, even industrial garbage and recycling management, maybe you're taking a look at a big home renovation or a huge landscaping project and you could use one of those front load or roll off bins. Are you putting together a community event or a festival this summer where you'll need fencing, portable toilets, or even water hauling? Keep it local with Local Environmental Services. You'll find them online at localenvironmental.ca. We lead off this morning and we lead off this week uh, with an interview that I've been looking forward to for for quite some time. Uh, This guy is an impressive human being. Uh, He's lived an impressive life. He is currently uh, holding an impressive job. (laughs) He's a former pro hockey player and coach. He's an NHL analyst uh, on Sportsnet. He's the host of Real Kipper and Born on Sportsnet 590. He's also the author of the new book, Down and Back on Alcohol, Family, and a life in hockey. It's a real pleasure to welcome Justin Bourne to Real Talk. My man, you're making your debut on the show today. Thanks for making time for us. It's good to see your face. Yeah, thanks, Ryan. Appreciate you having me. Yeah, of course. So, so, so we're starting, we're, we're, we're promoting the show today uh, with a pretty personal question to our audience and to ourselves, and that's, do you drink too much? Uh, it's a question that most people would probably prefer not to grapple with, uh, but this is exactly the type of conversation that your book is is kickstarting. When did you decide to put your personal experience down into the pages of a book? Um, you know, I had planned on writing a, a book, a hockey book, for some time, and I think in the process of trying to, you know, I wanted to touch on all the different cultural things in hockey, whether it's partying, drinking, drugs alpha machismo, all that kind of stuff. And so I thought the best way to do that might be to use my own chronology, my own timeline to to weigh in. And then as I started to do that, it's impossible to do that without getting into where I have come and what has happened in my dad's past and all that. So I was about a couple years out of of treatment when I decided uh, to, to be a part of the bigger conversation and hopefully to, you know, I wanted to have conversations like this and connect with people and then who was the agency that came out and said you could have two drinks a week safely, yeah. like right when the book came out? And I was like, 
I don't know if people are going to like that too much, but it certainly makes it a more relevant conversation right now. Yeah, I was having this conversation just this weekend with with friends of ours, and one of them was convinced that the Health Canada guidelines were 15 drinks a week, and he was proud of himself for coming in just under that level. <laughs> and the other said, no, 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 it's changed to two. And, every, and, and he turned around and he went, two? Two? How am I supposed to drink two? Uh, for context, for people that might not know, Justin, uh, your dad, Bob Bourne, part of one of the NHL's great dynasties, four Stanley Cups uh, with the New York Islanders, there, there was a reality, I suppose, as you write about in your book, around alcoholism, around dependency that was flying under your radar, I guess, understandably, as, as a young boy. Yeah, you know, like, uh, I think when my dad played in the NHL, it was a little different. Like, he, he talked about when you know the Islanders were winning their cups, they actually did some renovations to the dressing room so they could build a card room off the back, sit around and drink beers after the game, in the dressing room before everyone drove home, you know, then that was just like a different, a different environment and a different culture. So yeah, I didn't see that side of it as much, but you know, I saw when he was done with his playing days, you know, the parties, he had a celebrity golf tournament. So a lot of his old teammates would come by and come back to the house and, you know, chip golf balls in the backyard and drink 304 beers. And I thought it looked like a pretty good time. Um, I went on to find out that that sort of environment is a pretty good time. Some of us are just not wired to be able to handle that good time the way that others are. Hmm. But you, so you, you know, we fast forward a few years and, and by the way, I'm, I'm totally cool if our conversations jumping all over the place chronologically. Uh, what I found interesting, one of the things that you share in your book is that in your first few years of junior hockey, you weren't a big boozer. I mean, I think a, a lot of yeah. people might assume that the minute uh, that, that, that a young person moves away from home or the, the minute they're into a team scenario or trying to earn the approval of their peers or, or whatever the case may be that that alcohol may be a big part of that but but you weren't hitting the bottle at 12 13 14 15 years old no and that's you know my, my dad left when i was eight years old he was coaching in the international hockey league the old las vegas thunder and utah grizzlies teams of yore so um you know i grew up in a house with a single mother and my mom didn't drink a whole lot and i had some sense of what our family history was so i was a little bit careful with the drinking but also i just you know, we had had some stress in our lives and I didn't want to be a problem for our family. And so once I went off to university at 2021, 20, you know, I, I was I felt a little bit more free away from the family to dabble a little bit. But, yeah, I spent three years of junior hockey bringing a case of Coca-Cola to the parties. And um, that that felt normal to me at the time. And I'm grateful eventually having gotten sober that I got to know myself sober in the first place. Some of the people in, in treatment that I ran into had been drinking from such a young age they just hadn't ever known themselves as a sober person and i'm i'm grateful that i had that to fall back on hmm. you when you talk about going into treatment that's obviously a huge step and, and for some people that'll be a necessary step but it's got to start somewhere right i think, I think for, yeah. for the average person i mean we almost joke about this except for it's not funny and i and i think that most people that imbibe have had those mornings where they're in the shower and they're dragging their ass. They're, they're leaning against the wall. They're wishing they didn't have to go to work. They're, they're, that yeah. sort of idea of, please, God, make this go away, and I promise I'll never drink again. I mean, people joke about that, but, but that yeah. is a conversation internally that a lot of people have. How many of those did you have before you took a couple remarkable steps? Uh, it's, you know, it's years. It's not, like, it's not like I woke up and went, boy, I don't want to feel this hangover. It was, you know, I, I had been for 10 years – drinking straight vodka out of a water bottle hidden in my house at various points of the day. You know, I, I think I wrote in the book that at one point, I think before I got sober, 
I wouldn't have had a 0.00 blood alcohol level for five months. Like, you know, drink through the night in the morning. Uh, it just, you know, I, I had completely lost track of it. So the ability to feel a hangover when you're that kind of alcoholic is different. You don't wake up and feel nauseous or want Taco Bell. I just need more alcohol to be able to kind of balance out the shakes. And, you know, I one thing I've been saying to, some, to people in having this conversation more frequently is like, you know, there was no uh, rock bottom for me, you know, no day where I did something terrible. Um, it just was the daily erosion of getting 1% worse as a person, my health, my relationships, my employment, that washing my life, you know, not get worse day to day, but then you step back and go over the last six months, everything is so much worse. That to me was my oh my God, I can't keep living like this rather than a day where I woke up and I like, you know, hooked up with my boss or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. Did you, uh, did you like when you look back on your hockey career, you, you had an opportunity to, to play pro. Um, obviously, you, you know, you, ha you have the lineage, you, you, the gene pool uh, would be favorable to you. Uh, you know, did, did you look back and, or do you look back now and, and look at alcohol or, or, or your, your dependence on alcohol as something that may have stood in the way of, of of playing a regular shift in the National Hockey League? Yeah, you know, and so I'll be clear about one thing. I don't think I was going to play in the NHL. Like, I don't think it was alcohol that kept me short, but I never gave myself a fair shake at it, and that does eat at me a little bit. You know, I, I would say I only took being a professional hockey player serious or the idea of it maybe in my latest teen years, maybe when I reached university, had a few years of really working hard in the summer and getting better. And I could see the strides I was making. It was happening for me. And then I lost somewhere towards the end of university. I lost the summers of progress where I started drinking too much and partying too much. And, um, you know, the summer I went to Islander after I went to Islanders camp, I had given it a really good go. And then during that season, I was just so beat up after a full season of pro hockey, you know, Islanders camp, American league, ECHL, American league, ECHL playoffs, all that sort of stuff that that summer I was, that was the first time drinking really affected my hockey where instead of being back in the gym two or three weeks after the season, it was maybe six weeks, maybe seven weeks, almost two months before I got back at it. And it was just too late to really make any gains that summer. So the next year the Islanders invited me back to, to training camp. I'd had a good year with them and they wanted me to come back. And I was so ashamed that I was going to be in worse shape than I was the year before. And I have my family name with my dad having played for the Islanders that I didn't want to go there and embarrass the family name. I didn't want to be worse, which I was worried I was going to be. And I declined. Mm. I would be the only guy to ever decline an NHL training camp invite and in instead chose to go to Hershey in the American Hockey League to see if I could just play there and get myself in shape and then to have a good season. I tore my MCL in Hershey and never got that year on track. Mm. How much did becoming a dad factor into to your decision to make some pretty significant life changes? Uh, I mean, not going to say it's everything because my wife and the rest of my family are worth it too, but it's pretty close, pretty close to everything. You know, I, my son, when I went to treatment was two and a half years old and uh, he doesn't remember that time. And I'm so grateful he doesn't. And I just, I don't want him to ever have to know that version of me. And I've just, been you know it's like the the greatest source of pride for me in making this change is that i didn't lose the chance to be his dad every day and to deal with the minutiae 
This morning in my house was awful. Awful. Two kids trying to get into daycare, school, whatever. The things weren't going right. And I'm so glad to be there through that. Mm. That's the stuff, man, that like, you know, you end up understanding where the kids are coming from and what shapes them and being able to teach the little lessons and all that. And being able to be a part of the days that are challenging like that are as meaningful to me as the best days. I'm, you know, and I know I would have missed that had I continued on the same path. I, 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 you're, I mean, your book, everybody's talking about it. I, I mean, and, and one of the things I think is really neat is that they're talking about it on uh, sports shows and sports columnists are writing about it. And, and then, you know, news columnists or mainstream opinion columnists are talking about it. You're kickstarting a conversation that's, that's very important. And for a lot of people, obviously, I'm sure this is what you're intending to do. It will prompt a look inside. And people yeah. will start to evaluate their own uh, relationship with alcohol. You recently tweeted a photo holding up, you know, you're holding up that four years sober coin. And uh, do you have it in your hand right now? There it is. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, let me ask you. So some people will say I need to cut back. Some people will say I'm only going to drink on the weekend. Some people say I drink on the holidays. Other people will say I can't touch it. Like, how yeah. did you find the decision that was right for you? You know, I tried a few things. I, you know, I had a few people say to me, and maybe some people out there ha- have this too, question the amount I was drinking, you know, like, is it excessive? And then, you know, you get defensive as an alcoholic, you always protect the ability to drink at all costs. And so I'd say, I'm on vacation. If I can't drink, it's the weekend, it's the Super Bowl, it's whatever, you know, I, I almost always found an excuse to drink. And so I I'd had a number of people, maybe three people in my life that asked me about it. I had an uncle, I had a brother-in-law, my mom, you know, and my wife all say, you know, we okay here. Can we keep this in check? And rather than heed that advice, I didn't want to get better. I didn't want to stop drinking till I needed to. I felt like I could manage it. So I tried different avenues. I went to Chem H here in Toronto and um, tried harm reduction but I lied my way through that and drank the whole while in secret while claiming to try. Mm. Um, you know, like I just, when everyone wanted to help me and my, I was unable and unwilling to try for the people I love the most, I think it's safe to say I knew I, this is a very serious problem for me. There will be people out there who can manage their drinking, even though they've had problematic moments. Um, I just don't get to. I just, I'm not able to, you know, my, I guess in my family, it's, I have been, I have tested the waters here on this one. And part of the acceptance for me is not, not accepting that I'm an alcoholic, but accepting that this isn't like in a few years, I can go back and have a little wine and it's going to be okay. I actually did the uh, Bob McCown show yesterday with Trip Tracy, who said after five and a half years sobriety, he tried to, he, you know, he talked to his parents about it and tried again. And, you know, eventually it all, his world fell apart again. And I know that that's waiting for me. It's not going to be better. It's the worst. It's going to be worse. So I, I just have to accept that I am not a person who gets to. Uh, I would recommend anyone out there who's worried about it to just try and make sure you can stop if you want to. Because if you find that, ah, if, if you find a reason every time to keep drinking, it's time for some real reflection. Oh, one of the, one of the j- just to read a couple sentences out of your book, uh, if you're just tuning in, live streaming audio on the Mixer Audio app presented by uh, California Closets. We're talking to Justin Bourne, his, his brand new book just out. Uh, a few days ago, you write, well, I waited for my teammates and roommates to wake up. I had the thought for the first time, boy, it feels like I enjoy drinking way more than everyone else. That's not good. 
I didn't process the question I was developing about myself. Might I be an alcoholic? Now, I've never attended an AA meeting, but I think it's probably uh, there's a lot of thought and intent and uh, and strategy, quite frankly, that goes into the opening introduction that people make. Right. Right. Like, yeah. my name is Justin and I'm an alcoholic. The first time that you yeah. said that out loud, how did it feel and what's been the impact? And do your feelings change when you say it on a show like this years later? No, you know, it's funny that that is something I think that varies a great deal. Mm you know, among alcoholics, how hard it is for them to accept that. You know, I had watched hockey players, I and mostly, I'll be honest, retired hockey players who played with my dad, and I watched them and I went, that guy's an alcoholic. You know, he's definitely an alcoholic, but he maintains a life. He signs autographs at events and people love him and he has his family. And I was like, I assumed that there were a lot of alcoholics who managed their condition and got through life managing it. And that was my goal. I wanted to be a alcoholic who managed his alcoholism, which, you know, the first part of the program I follow is accepting that our lives had become unmanageable, which is ironic because it became unmanageable. So anyway, I had accepted that I was an alcoholic like five, 10 years before going to treatment, before going into the rooms and, and discussing with other people. So when I eventually came to the rooms and said, you know, hi, my name is Justin and I'm an alcoholic and everyone said, hi, Justin. I didn't do anything, didn't phase me one bit. I knew I was and had been. I know a lot of people, that's a big, big step, hearing themselves say it and coming to grips with it. For me, I had been trying to manage my alcoholism and that was just not, didn't work for me. Hmm. Hey, I want to, we, we have this uh, live tuning audience. Most people will hear this later in the day, but the, the live audience is, I think, the most engaged audience in Canada. And I want to read some of these comments. I want you to hear them. Like, like Lauren, for example, says, you can feel Justin's inner peace. Uh, yeah. Do you feel that? Like, is, is he on to something? Yeah. Uh, I mean, that, I'm so that makes me so happy to hear someone say that because uh, one of the questions I've been asked in the last couple of days is like, how do you cope with this? And it's like, I don't cope with this. I'm freed from it. Like, I'm not like, oh, like hang white knuckling it, like trying to avoid alcohol. I, I was in chains. Like I built my day around getting my next drink, hiding from my wife, hiding from my employers. I didn't want to go on trips because, you know, I didn't know where I'd get my drinks. Like, I am free now to live and to be a part of the beautiful family I have and to be a part of their lives and to be fulfilled in so many ways that I wasn't getting before. I don't feel like an imposter or a liar or all the things that I was for a while. I get to be free. Mm. And so I do feel an inner peace that, you know, I, I just – wouldn't have believed I could have found when I was in the worst of it. Let me read a few more. Erica says, my husband comes from a long line of not really alcoholics, but let's call them problem drinkers or problematic drinkers. Uh, she says he quit cold turkey three and a half years ago. Our kids are young enough that they have no memory of him being a drinker. And hopefully that family curse can break with him. Uh, Mark says, I wondered if I was an alcoholic, so I stopped drinking for six months, uh, 23 years ago. He says, I never really started drinking again, and I, and I feel so much better. Allison makes a really great point. She says, you don't have to be an alcoholic to change your relationship with alcohol. 100%. Right? Yeah. No, that's, you know, my, I actually, my publicist, when I started this, is like, what is like the message? What's the one message you want to go get out through all this with the, with the book? And it was that, I chose to make a change before I hit someone with my car drunk driving or my wife took my kid and moved back to New York 
or my employer told me, you know, before I, it was unhirable because I tweeted something awful. Like I chose to stop before uh, the world forced me to stop. And there's this misconception that there's rock bottom waiting for bad alcoholics, that they're going to have this awful event happen that's going to change their lives. There's always a lower bottom if you keep drinking, if you keep going back and, and living the same way you had been living before. So I'm a low bottom alcoholic, but you don't have to be an alcoholic. And this is a great point that that person made is that if you just want to change your habits, that's an option too. And you know, the, what's the expression? Like the best day to make the change is yesterday. And the next best one is today. Yeah. Uh, you know, you, you, it's just a choice you get to make. You don't have to be forced into it. Um, Alyssa says, I know a few people who had to reevaluate their alcohol consumption during COVID. Uh, it becomes easy to use as a crutch. And, and Dean's is wondering if you could maybe he says, I, could you ask Justin about how isolation can yeah. contribute to problem drinking? Can it be mitigated somewhat by online sources or resources like Zoom meetings or what have you? I mean, to, to bring back the conversation to, to hockey or to pro sports or to life on the road, uh, did you find isolation factoring in? Well, isolation is pro is the number one cause or not cause, but maybe goal of an alcoholic. You know, they, they say our condition drives a wedge between us and everything that we love, whether it's family, work or whatever, to make more room for alcohol. And so, you know, being alone is, is absolutely one of the biggest triggers for a lot of people and free time is another one. But yes, online, you know, connection can mitigate it. It's just connection. You know, for me, that that really is the opposite of, of alcoholism. Instead of sitting alone and hiding this existence, you know, if you have people around you that, you know, care about you and you feel like you have relationships, whatever it may be, you know, AA meetings for some people can be on Zoom or it doesn't, you know, whatever your connection may be, isolation is, is something to fight back against. And a lot of people will say before they relapse who are in my position will say, I didn't realize I was doing it consciously, but I was, you know, ending a relationship here, quitting a job there. All of a sudden, I, you know, I, I found myself in this isolation again so I could start drinking again. And it's it's a subconscious thing that that is what the alcoholic brain wants. It is isolation to drive a wedge between those things that keeps that isolation away. Can you tell us about your daily routine around around considering the wolves that you may be yeah. feeding? Yeah, happily. Yeah, you know, there's a, it's, I think, believe it's a Cherokee parable, you know, the, the feed the, or sorry, I say feed the good wolf, but the, it's called the two wolves. And, you know, the story just goes old grandfather, you know, says uh, grandson comes up and he's mad at a, another kid. Grand, grandfather said, listen, there's two wolves inside of us. You know, one of them is good and patience and honesty and love. The other is, you know, evil and dishonesty and all the anger and all those things. And the grandson says, you know, uh, which wolf wins? And he says, the one I feed. And so for me, feed the good wolf is, you know, a reminder to do the little things in my life when I'm faced with choices that make me confident in myself, proud of myself, and show me I'm able to live this sort of uh, this healthier, better lifestyle. And the more I feed the good wolf, the more good I do, the stronger that becomes, the more it becomes who I am as a whole. You know, I believe I am those good things because I do those good things. And so for me, it becomes much easier to make the right choices on big things. Like, should I pick up the next drink? Hmm. Um, that's, you know, a tattoo. And I got wolves around me here and just a daily little reminder 
feeding the good wolf is uh yeah definitely a mantra i live by now you know i, I for people watching on youtube I, I i grabbed this jean jacket off a hanger earlier this morning not on purpose but it does have the lapel pin here you can see the wolf and and i think hey, maybe, no. hey i mean maybe that that might just be the universe my man because that wasn't a, that wasn't a conscious choice that i made um as a matter of fact i'm just noticing it right now as the studio lights are hitting the pin um let, let me bring this full circle in closing we're talking to justin Bourne. obviously you got to get to the Sportsnet studios today and you got you, you got your work cut out for you this week sure yeah, appreciate yeah. your time i was talking to a pal uh won't say who it is doesn't matter um played pro uh you know the high NHL draft pick played a lot of years captain of a dub team like like has accomplished a lot and uh we were joking around he was just joking around uh but he was yeah. talking about how lame it is. and he was having fun with it but he he goes you know you bring he goes you bring the prospects now and you bring the young guns and the top picks and the blue chips to these golf tournaments and he goes it's, it's boring he goes you can't get them to drink a beer he goes they want their protein yeah. shakes they want their vitamin water <laughs> is the culture of hockey changing in the context of what we're talking about? Have, have you noticed it? Well, I just think there's so much money on the line now that like the, you know, every 1% game you can make, you make now. And so you see less people having five beer lunches after practice, like, you know, me and my friends used to in college and university. So there is the fact that just making it is harder. The level is higher. You know, there's less room for people who live an unhealthy lifestyle, but also, yeah, there's more acceptance and awareness of all different lifestyles and, and choices. And I think we, we bring this sort of problem and concern to the attention of players better than we did before. That's one thing Like I, I wrote this book and I didn't want it to be to blame hockey for the way that I am or my family is because hockey has given me and my family everything we have. It's been my dad's profession and now it's my work. I love hockey, but that doesn't mean I can't recognize that there have been flaws. The push towards excess, you know, when you do drink has always been part of that culture of, you know, the machismo sporting culture thing. But as you mentioned, it does seem to be changing. I think there's less room for it, less acceptance of it. And hopefully like fighting and hazing and those things, it's dwindling around the NHL. Justin Bourne's uh, book is just out last week, Down and Back on Alcohol, Family, and a Life in Hockey. You can buy it anywhere you buy great books. And, of course, you can catch him regularly on Sportsnet, Game Nights, and, of course, on Real Kipper and Bourne on Sportsnet 590. Really value your time, pal. Uh, I barely know you, but can I say I'm proud of you. I'll take it. I, I appreciate that, Ryan. Thanks so much for having me, and thanks for furthering this conversation on your program, man. Yeah, you got it. That's an impressive human being right there. We'd love to hear how interviews like that land with you. You can send us an email anytime to talk at ryanjesperson.com. Coming up on the next episode of The Best of Real Talk, we're going to find out how Ashley Wanamaker became an accidental TikTok therapist. And we'll take you to our interview with filmmaker Trevor Anderson and photographer Fish Grakowski. Their new film, Before I Change My Mind. Really, really interesting commentary on the non-binary element of society and sports. Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson, Executive Producer Josh Dunford, Technical Producer John Hicks, General Manager Katie Cook Chivers, Account Coordinator Lawrence Durlego, Human Resources Lena Shepard, Website Design Mike Johnston, 
voiceover by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Sapria Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Brandi Morin, Anne Castleman, Corey Hogan, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Member Emerita, Julie Rohr. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Soto, and Nakota Sioux, home to the Métis settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is a relay project. For more, check out ryanjasperson.com.